Well, good morning, everybody. You can be seated. Um, it's great to be back at Covenant Church on this Lord's Day with you all. Um, Hannah and I have been traveling quite a bit the last few months and certainly um, have missed being here. We've very much grown accustomed to how we do church around here. And uh, come April, I'm sure we will miss um, the sincerity and the simplicity of doing church with people who um, have, come to, have come to become our close friends. Um, for now, um, you're stuck with me preaching to you. Um, I'll be preaching from Luke 24, verses 13 through 35 this morning. Um, you can find that on page 831 in your pew Bibles. If I had a moment of dyslexia with that, I'm sorry. Um, and it's under the heading, The Road to Emmaus. Uh, this narrative takes place directly after Mary and some other women find Jesus' tomb empty right after the Sabbath, after his crucifixion. Um, that day was, of course, the day our Savior rose from the dead. So this story takes place on the first Resurrection Sunday. It's a longer passage, but I hope to show you something very important in it. That Christ himself taught that the whole Old Testament was aimed at presenting him and him crucified all along. Amen. The gospel is woven into each Old Testament text. God wants us to read it that way, that our hearts will be set on fire by the fulfillment of the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. Uh, let's pray together, and then I'll begin reading in verse 13. Um, Almighty God, uh, we come before you today as um, burnt out, um, tired parents, um, working, Lord, help us to get the most out of um, this Resurrection Sunday, as we commemorate um, the day that you vindicated your son, he was raised from the dead by your power and by his power. Lord, help us to see Christ in this text. Help us to heed his words. Lord, they're so simple, but man, they're so important, and we just seem to forget them so quickly. Lord, enable us to have ears to hear. Help us to apply this text, Lord. Help us to have that burning fire that these two disciples had on the other side of Christ, interpreting from the Old Testament all that was promised of him and how he is the fulfillment of everything that you promised to us. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'm starting in verse 13. It reads this way. That very day, Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all his people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, 
And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, that the day, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. A very exciting passage. Very, so much hope. Uh, when I read this text, I can't help but think of this little story I know. There is this funny little moment in Charles Spurgeon's ministry that is more of a nightmare uh, for up-and-coming preachers like myself. Um, certainly the story is true on more than one occasion. I've heard Spurgeon share it in a general way, and I've also heard him actually having this conversation, heard of him actually having this conversation with somebody. I'll share the way that makes me smile the most. Um, so when Charles Spurgeon was nearing the end of his preaching ministry, he was, uh, he was having younger men uh, preach to see who would take over the primary preaching duties of Metropolitan Tabernacle. That's where he preached in London all those years. Now, one nameless young man took his shot, and he preached his sermon, and it seemed to be received pretty well. Um, big shoes to fill, obviously. Uh, as people were exiting, the young man, of course, approaches Spurgeon uh, to ask him what he thought of his sermon, and he says, Pastor Spurgeon, what did you think of my sermon? And in very modern age English manner, Spurgeon responds, mm, yes, very poor sermon indeed, very poor. And the kid just... <laughs> And I know that's funny, but for someone in my position, that's just a heart attack. So the young man starts to ask, well, what did you, what, well, what did you find, uh, what, did you find my reading of the word poor? He said, no, 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 very well read, very well read, yes. And what of my introduction and my conclusion? Errors there? No, no, certainly not. And my major points, were they lacking or were they unclear? No, my boy, very clear indeed. Did you find anything in my sermon to be incorrect or unorthodox? Not at all, lad. All very true indeed. So the young man is dumbfounded. Nothing he has said was wrong or, po or poorly presented. Yet the prince of preachers is telling him his practiced efforts resulted in a poor sermon. And so he asks, well, what did you find poor about my sermon, sir? And Spurgeon says this. He says, well, there was no Christ in it. <laughs> It's not that fun for that kid. It's not, it's not a good day. So there's a bit of a pause, and the young man asks, well, should I misplace Christ in a text that has no Christ in it? And Spurgeon started to turn this young pastor into what a church really needs. It needs a pastor theologian. 
Spurgeon says, have you ever heard that you could be anywhere in London or anywhere in England and that no matter where you are, all roads lead to London? And the young man says, well, yes, of course, all Englishmen know that all roads lead to London. So it is with Christ in all the scriptures. All the roads within scripture lead to Christ. And the preacher must work hard to lead the congregation back to Christ, wherever they are on the road. In fact, if I do not find an immediate route, I will chop down hedges and move rocks to get us back on the road to Christ. <laughs> do you understand, son? He says, yes, 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 and he moves on. The story is shared a couple ways, but Spurgeon made a point to say that every sermon should have enough of the gospel in it to save a soul. That's Christian preaching. And it seems a simple enough claim. Should we preach, or as Christians, should we simply read and think about the scriptures as if they are all Christ-centered? In the final analysis, absolutely yes, 100% of the time. We should absolutely be considering how each text relates back to Christ and Him crucified. And that sounds very nice at first. Sorry, Siri. And that sounds very nice at first. A great way to simplify things. However, it can be very hard to do so correctly when taking on that task. The truth is we must do our very best to do so. Because Christ himself taught us to do so. His apostles taught us to do so. And our Christian lives will not be what they are meant to be if we do not find Christ in all the scriptures. As I exposit this text, I aim to show how Christ is the burning heart of all the scriptures. He is the main event. He is the main answer. He is the main purpose. And he was so all along. From beginning to end, the word of God is written to present God as creator and redeemer. And he fulfills both those roles through his son from start to finish. Our text today is is the guiding light in how to do that and also why it matters. So Luke 24, 13 through 35, find some disciples in despair. Christ has just been crucified, and some women have found Christ's tomb empty. Peter went to check it out, but has not yet believed that Christ has been raised. So a disciple named Cleopas and another disciple are walking to another town, and a man meets them on the road. We know that this man is Jesus, raised from the dead, vindicated from all the false claims, and all false authorities who could not hold him nor control him, he's the resurrected God-man, in whom the fullness of the divine power and nature of God dwells in. They have no idea who they are talking to, and it just so happens to be the one who has been turning the world upside down in front of them for the last three years straight. They are walking to another town on the original Easter, and they are talking, to what has, they are talking of what has transpired over that three years, over that time, and Jesus comes to them. But then we get that interesting detail. The scripture says they were kept from recognizing him. Why, why were they kept? Moreover, how were they kept? Simply put, the Lord has not enabled them to see Christ for who he is in his resurrected state. A veil of sin and unbelief is still there. Thus they are blind to the deepest reality of the situation. Back at the end of chapter 16, Jesus shared his story about Lazarus and the rich man. Once the rich man had received his wages of death after his life, he wanted to warn his brothers about damnation. 
thinking if he went to them from the dead, they would repent and change their ways. And the Lord's response was this. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's just about what is going on here. They did watch Jesus die, but did not believe that he would raise himself up again to new life after the curse was paid in full. Their conscience has not been decisively convinced of the Old Testament's main claim in regard to salvation, and so they don't have the mind to understand what they are seeing. The Lord has to do that mysterious work. So Jesus starts that work, and he asks them, what are you both talking about? And Cleopas asks, you must be new here, right? How could you not know what's been going on? The greatest events of history have just happened. The fullness of time had come, and while they could not apprehend all that had happened, they comprehended the, most Im- the importance of what was happening. Everything that had happened over the last three years was of the greatest importance. They knew it when he was with them, and their confidence had dwindled while he was away. Unbelief was leading them to despair, even though Jesus told them he, would, he was going to be going away and that he would return. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus asks about these things he fully knows. God does that with his people throughout the Old Testament. Who told you you were naked? Said God to Adam and Eve. What are you doing in this cave? God says to a despairing prophet. God knows what is going on. And Jesus didn't have amnesia after a coma. He was killed and he was raised from the dead by the power of God. And now he is back to questioning his disciples so they will understand their errors. Cleopas responds, These things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. He's saying... One came who was so great, we thought he was the one. We thought he was the one to fulfill the promise. We thought he'd take David's throne. We thought he'd put us back on top, but he's gone now, and that's that. That's what Cleopas is saying. And so they didn't believe the women. They found it unbelievable that Jesus was alive. And Jesus calls them foolish for not believing the truth. It's important to note that when he calls them foolish, he's not calling them stupid or simple. That's a different category back in the day. Foolishness is not an intellectual status. It's, it's worse than that, actually. It's a moral status. You can't blame someone for being dumb, for the most part. <laughs> if they don't get it, they don't get it. Um, but to call someone a fool is to say they are doing wrong and not acting in accordance with the truth. They betray what is right, and they do something foolish, and we've all been foolish. It is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. That's what Jesus means. He is chastising them for their unbelief. He is saying, they are slow of heart to believe what is said of him. If they had understood what the prophets had said of the one who was going to redeem Israel, David's heir, they would know that he had to die for the sins of the people. Not just deliver them from Roman subjugation or Roman taxes, but deliver them from God's holy and just wrath. That is, deliver them from just eternal punishment. If they had really believed the Old Testament claims, they would know what the prophets knew. Jesus would have to die to save his people. 
He's saying they have misunderstood critical aspects of the promises of God. Not because they can't understand or have made a logical error, but because they are foolish. Slow hearts have made a priority error. That's what's happened. So what does he do? Verse 27 tells us something incredibly important. If you remember anything, remember this. Verse 27 says this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus himself interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. When I read that verse, I have thought, and maybe you've thought before, man, I'd really like to know what he said. What did he say to them? That would make my job really easy. Jesus interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The question is, what did he say? (laughs) The great thing about the Bible is that it interprets itself. I can tell you a lot of the things he has to have said then. He certainly brought up Genesis 3.15, if you remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Kendall's sermon on that, New Year's uh, Sunday. How Jesus himself was the fulfillment of God's promise to bruise the head of the serpent, that is Satan. How he was the promised one to save mankind from his enemy. He definitely brought up God's covenant with Noah. And himself being the ark for believers. He certainly brought up Genesis 12.3. How through Abraham's lineage, all the nations would be blessed. That blessing is, just, is Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He certainly brought up the edict for Abraham to sacrifice his only son. A very strange passage if you don't uh, understand that God spared Isaac in that place to show, to show Abraham the gospel. God did not require Abraham's son, but saved him and his son by giving his very own son on that very mountain. Where Isaac was spared is exactly where Jesus was crushed by God for our salvation. Christ in all the scriptures. The ram in the thorns, if you remember that story, was pointing Abraham to Christ's death in that place, wearing a crown of thorns. He certainly mentioned Joseph and the Exodus and how the blood of the lamb was on the doors of the Israelites so that the firstborns were spared. He certainly brought up Numbers 21.9 where Moses lifts up the bronze serpent and whoever looked to the serpent was saved from the vipers in the sand. And whoever looked, uh, this was a type and taste of what it was for Christ to be made a curse in order to relieve his people of the curse. His people being those who look to him by faith for his righteousness to be counted to their accounts. All of these things and much, much more are found in Moses, which is a shorthand way of saying the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus said that Moses wrote of him. If you don't believe that, just turn to John 5:46, where Jesus says verbatim, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. That statement was clearly a reference to Deuteronomy 18, promising a greater prophet than Moses. It's Jesus. The disciples believed this while Jesus walked with him, but they didn't understand he'd have to receive a mortal blow, a physical defeat for the sake of the spiritual victory of the resurrection and its immortal benefit. He had to reverse the curse. So Jesus took them back through Moses. And he also took them back through the prophets, something maybe we're a little less familiar with. He took them through Samuel's prophecy to David, how an eternal king would come from David's offspring. The only way you do that in a fallen world is through one who is truly God and truly man. This is probably the point of confusion for the disciples right here. How could the king suffer the death of a criminal? How could the, how could the eternal king die at all? 
How could he lose? A servant king with the power of life and death can die and can be raised again. The prophets prepared them for this. Isaiah said he will be born of a virgin and his name will be God with us. That one's pretty clear if you ask me. He said the child will be born and the ruling authority will be placed on him. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That one is very clear if you ask me. But then there is the chapter in Isaiah that they were ignoring. And many Jews are taught to ignore this chapter still today, actually. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Our church is familiar with this passage. We've read it together often and we will continue to do so. And what does it entail? God's perfectly wise servant will be sent to suffer on behalf of the people. He was prophesied to grow up before them, both meek in beginnings and appearance, but sinless, yet rejected from his birth. And those who rejected him, he patiently tolerated, bearing the grief and iniquity of many who persecuted him. He would die for the wayward people of God. If you don't believe you're wayward, it's hard to read that passage correctly. Jeremiah gives the same message, saying, One will come to redeem Israel, and his name will be the Lord is our righteousness. There's justification by faith alone from, for in the Old Testament, if you'd like to see it. Jesus certainly showed them that. He is the Son of Man in Daniel's prophecy, and he called himself by that name throughout his ministry. That Son of Man, the Anointed One, came to put an end to sin and atone for iniquity. Micah says this very ruler will come from Bethlehem. That happened. Zechariah said he will come to Zion. That is the mountain that Jerusalem is built upon. Riding a colt. That happened. Zechariah even said that the same shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered, which is exactly what happened on the original Good Friday. You can go on and on with Messianic texts until you're blue in the face and you will still have much more. I've pointed out some pivotal texts, but I've jumped over way more than I've mentioned. There are years' worth of texts to consider in regard to their Christ-centered nature. Acts tells us these texts are read every Sabbath, and yet people did not recognize this perfect correlation. Perfect. They did not realize everything the Old Testament promised was being fulfilled before their very eyes. That Jesus was the first resurrected from the dead, like in Ezekiel when the Valley of Dry Bones came back to life. Thus, Jesus interpreted Genesis to Malachi to these two disciples himself. Just past our text today, later in Luke 24, Jesus will apply this defining principle of seeing Christ in all the scriptures to the Psalms as well. He tells the disciples that everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus showed this to many people during his earthly ministry when he asked someone, when he asked how someone could both be David's son and David's Lord. And the people who had heard that psalm probably dozens of times, if not much, much more, heard him gladly. That common sense of the people responded with, hey, wait a second, that adds up. So what did he tell these two disciples on the road? He told them what you and I need to really know and internalize today. Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole Testament, and every part of Scripture bears witness to him. The truth is, we do not have to live wishing we were there. I wish Jesus would just interpret the whole thing for us. He did. And it has been preserved in the work of the Holy Spirit after Christ's ascension. We call it the New Testament. 
the full and vibrant and very clear self-revelation of Christ, the God-man, the Savior of every believer, is on full display in his testimony. Which brings us to our third point. The conviction that comes from knowing that we have a very, very clear truth. Extreme convictions and resolve, incredible peace and invincible joy. These are the fruits of the Christian life that is nurtured through reading God's word rightly. After this amazing interpretation, he decided to stay with them in the evening. He breaks bread and blesses it, and in that moment, the Lord acts in their hearts. They put it all together, and they realize who's sitting with them. They realize who's sitting with them again. And then he was gone. It's hard to say exactly how that took place. Did he evaporate? Did he teleport to the next scene of the harmonized gospel story? Um, We do know this. None of the possible answers to this vanishing are impossible for the God of the Bible. Don't get too hung up on that detail. He just showed them how to read the Bible. Stay focused on the intent of the book. (laughs) Not simply like the narrative content. Don't get distracted with where he went next. Some people get really weird about what the resurrected Christ was doing. It's very much worth considering. But always keep the main thing the main thing as you read Christ in all the scriptures. Here is the detail you cannot jump over. They aren't too troubled about his moving on, these two disciples. He has left them for his next task, and they say to each other the very important thing. Did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? That's the key to applying this passage. When Jesus told them of his promised suffering and his subsequent glory throughout the Old Testament, their despair was replaced with incredible faith and joy. So they raced to the disciples. They go back to town. And what do they find? Jesus has already appeared to Simon Peter, and they told of their own account, encounter how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread, which is, of course, reminiscent of the Lord's Supper. What a day for those two believers. They had about an hour or more of Jesus giving them the ultimate interpretation of the texts they had heard their whole lives. And perhaps on the most deflated day of their lives, where the one they thought to redeem Israel is certainly dead on the third day. Yet he was resurrected. We need to reflect on where we are at when we see these two disciples in this historic moment. Because this road to Emmaus is certainly a historic moment. So the question is, just as their eyes were kept. Why can't we recognize truth that is evident? God's existence is evident. We know of him through the created order and through the fact that he placed eternity in every man and woman's heart. You know God exists. Everyone has knowledge of God. What's the barrier? That's the question. What's the barrier? I'll tell you. It is our desire for autonomy. We don't piece the scriptures together as we should, because it demands serious change to our lives. (laughs) It attacks the parts of our lives we perceive as well-adjusted, and it makes them at stake. We all have a problem of wanting to do whatever we want to do. (laughs) But the clearer the scripture becomes, the more binding on our behavior it becomes. Easier to just whimsically, you know, be whimsical about the law of God. Just keep it as the bumpers on our bowling lane rather than a trainer 
that is teaching us to throw strikes. We want to keep it general, not precise, not cutting, because then we have to change. And unfortunately for our desires, loosely holding to the morals of the Bible results in what takes place in these disciples' hearts at the beginning of this section. They're talking of these things, but still very sad, very uncertain, and very unconvicted. So much so that they don't recognize Jesus in front of themselves. But Christ called them on that, and he leavened the conversation with a full understanding of who he is. And it brought them joy and faith. That's what I want you to see. It brought them joy and faith. True joy and faith. Lasting joy and faith. Serious confidence in the promises of God. They say their hearts burned at the clear truth and claim that Christ had actually done it all. This was more than a lecture. It was more than intellectual knowledge. It was a visceral experience. Their minds and their hearts had been pierced. And that's what we need. We need to have our hearts pierced by the whole counsel of God, convicted by an uncompromising and an even inconvenient interpretation. We must be careful not to interpret around our preferences, and we are very prone to do that. (laughs) But then we will miss it. We will miss Christ. We will miss the benefits of seeing him in his word. Studying the Bible is real work. They'll just read over it and pray it. But studying the Bible is real work. But it's work he enables us to do because he does his work in us and our work with us by the Spirit. He can sanctify our minds by the Spirit of the Scriptures. R.C. Sproul always said this. He said the heart is reached through the mind. We need the Scriptures to do that that way. It's the new year. Perhaps you've resolved to read through the whole Bible this year. That's a great practice, by the way. But don't just check off four chapters a day and give no effort to the comprehension of the Christ-centeredness of it all. Better to read a chapter a day and find Christ in, that, in it than to read five a day just to feel like a good boy, uh, forgetting what you read and moving on as a busy bee. Remember that when the apostles preached the gospel... Or maybe know this for the first time. When the, the apostles preached the gospel, the texts they used were the Old Testament to ground their claims. That was always its function. The New Testament rec- records the fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament. Do not separate their functions incorrectly. The key to reading Christ in all the scriptures is in this chapter right here, Luke 24. You can come back here to remind yourself. All the scriptures focused on Christ. When it says he interpreted the Old Testament to them, it wasn't simply saying, now these are only about me. No, they were always about him. And that is what brought the burning to their hearts. And we should not be left wishing we could have been there for the 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. I admit, obviously, that'd be a great time. But we don't have to be wishing we were there for those 40 days as if we missed out on some knowledge or something that they had that we don't have. Why? We see Peter utilize this full interpretation at Pentecost. He continued to do for others what Jesus did for him. He interpreted the Old Testament correctly so that the gospel would be on full display. Stephen did this also, and Paul did it for his Gentile churches, which now includes this church. 
The New Testament is the perfect interpretation of the Old Testament. I had a coworker back in November say to me, I just finished Isaiah. It's a very large prophet of the Old Testament. It's many, many chapters. I had no idea what it was about, but I prayed that the Lord would use it. <laughs> in chapter 4 of Luke, Jesus whips out an actual scroll of Isaiah and says to his audience that they have just heard the, that particular prophecy fulfilled that moment. Isaiah is about Jesus. <laughs> An Ethiopian approached the disciple of Philip on the road and said, what's this Isaiah scroll about? And Philip preaches the gospel from Isaiah to that Gentile Ethiopian, and then he gets baptized right then and there. There's no New Testament reference verse at that point. It hadn't been written. Jesus had shown them the gospel in the Old Testament. And it was the same gospel we see from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Edmund P. Clowney, a great preacher who founded the preaching department at Westminster the Theological Seminary, um, known for preaching Christ and all the scriptures, said it this way. I had to get a Clowney quote in this one. He says, The story of the Old Testament is the story of the Lord, what he has done and what he has purposed to do, The Old Testament does not provide us with biographies or national history. Hear that. The Old Testament does not provide us with biographies or national history. It is the story of God's work, not men's. It speaks of men in the context of God's covenant with them. Since salvation is of the Lord and not men, the issue is always faith. The issue is always faith, and it was always faith. The heroes of the Old Testament, as the author of Hebrews plainly tells us, are men and women of faith. They trust in God, believe the promises, and look for the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God himself. That's what we do as well. With the treasures we have here, with the treasures we have here, in this book, we have the complete revelation of God. What's the main concern of the Bible? How is fallen man made right with the holy God of the universe? By putting one's faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To be saved. To believe that he is king. That he is risen. And that his righteousness alone can justify a sinful people before God. Old Testament believers, they called, him, they called the Christ Messiah, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. We call him Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and our God. And we will praise him in unity by his many names for all eternity. So what do we do with all this? Well, we certainly read the Bible differently. And we read it to our children differently. Don't, please, for your children's sake, don't talk about Noah and the ark with your kids without mentioning where Christ is in that story. That will lead to dead orthodoxy. Factoids with no conviction, no hope, no joy. That's the goal. Conviction, hope, joy in Christ and the promises of God. Reading the Old Testament that way, without reading Christ in it, will lead to moralism, which is an anti-Christian message. If we do not preach Christ in the Old Testament... We endanger our children and ourselves of believing that they or we are actually law keepers, that we're actually doing it, which will be a decisive roadblock to believing the gospel. That is the main roadblock to believing the gospel for those who grow up 
with God's word in their life. Watch out for that. Preach Christ to your children every time you open this book at home. It's ensuring that you are reading it correctly. Whether you have a PhD on a certain passage or not, find an honest route to Christ and Him crucified. The joy and peace of the gospel in the Old Testament. They saw that. They were saved by faith alone. Same as you and me. So that's the first. Second, know that much Old Testament preaching has been void of Christ. In fact, if preachers were honest with you, they are very intimidated to preach the Old Testament. Why? They haven't put it together. Know that that's just that's true. You, you will find that uh, today. It is assumed, the problem is, it is assumed we must understand the Old Testament apart from Christ to understand the New Testament. No. <laughs> that's a complete blunder. Uh, it's impossible, actually. I'm currently on a journey of undoing what I've been told about much of the Old Testament. Take Jesus at his word here. See it the way he saw it. Read it the way his apostles read it and interpreted it. And lastly, understand the gravity of opening this text. You can understand it. If you can memorize line after line of your favorite shows... You can understand this book. (laughs) You just have to give it time. You have to give it a lot of time. And know that this is where you find your Savior. There's so much information going around. Smartphone, screens everywhere. You have to give this book time. Not just so that you're a good boy or a good girl. The Old Testament was always about Jesus. It was not accommodated. It was fulfilled. If your Bible is vastly more worn on the New Testament pages than the Old Testament pages, like mine is, it's time to take what you've learned clearly in the New Testament and see the same in the Old. Why? Because that's God's chosen ordinance to make your hearts burn for Christ. That's the life we're after, right? Do you want what those two disciples wanted? Faith and joy. Read the Bible this way. It will renew your mind and it will lead you into the life you know you should live. And you'll want to live it. (laughs) The Holy Spirit will meet you there. And he'll do that work in you himself. That's a promise for believers. That's a promise. If you want to start enjoying him forever, because what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you want to start enjoying him forever, Meet him where he's revealed himself to us. You have no hope outside of that. You have a mundane and confused life apart from it. This is a believer's fuel. If you've been changed by God, there is no other way forward. If you have not been born again, dwell on the promises of God in this word. Dwell on the promises of God. The law will convict you of your sin. But you will also find that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. You'll find that from cover to cover. He is worthy to save you, and he's paid what all those who will believe in him owe. He is worthy to have a church, an eternal church, and he, will, and he freely invites you today. Brothers and sisters, he's redeemed you for far more than you comprehend. You're in the right place. 
He's doing that work in each of us every Lord's Day through the preaching of his word. From beginning to end, God's word is very good news. Let's pray. Lord, it's, it's, resur- it's Sunday. We come today to commemorate the resurrection of your son. Just as those two disciples had great, great joy and great faith, and their despair was replaced with a burning heart, a burning heart for Christ and for you and for your glory and for your purposes and for the life that you set for them. Just as they were set aflame that day, by seeing Christ in all the scriptures, Lord, do that work in us. Give us the conviction to just take a look, to read God's word, to know God's word. Lord, not because it justifies us by works, not because we have to study the Bible rigorously to be saved, but Lord, but because we are saved, we study the Bible rigorously. We don't want other things. It's important to us. It's central to our lives. It's seared onto our minds. And it doesn't fade away. Lord, you want all of your children to have a burning heart. We get that through the scriptures. Thank you for your scriptures. Lord, help us to each, each Sunday live in the faith and the joy and the confidence that your son has been resurrected because he did all the work needed for us to be forgiven. That's gospel hope, Lord, and we thank you for it. Lord, be with us this year and through our lives as we contend with our flesh to open that Bible every day, <laughs> to keep fighting, Lord, enable us to do that. We, we've never been able to do it on our own. Lord, enable us to do that. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.